Okay, Joshua. Yes. We're going to start this episode by playing a little something for you. Have a listen to this. I've got a full mummified woman at the moment. And she, Alice, is probably worth about £20,000. But then I do have... I do have a special something which is worth quite a bit more. What's the special something? I've conveniently forgotten what it is. Was that your voice? <laughs> yep. Were you at a drug deal for a mummy? <laughs> <laughs> Not drugs, but as you heard there, there was something he didn't want to tell me. But apart from that, he went into a surprising amount of detail into his collection of things including human remains. This guy is called Henry Scrag. He is a collector of the macabre, and uh, I found him on Instagram. Human remains? That's allowed? Yeah, apparently so. And what Henry collects is interesting, but where he gets his collection is even more interesting. Joshua, there is a human remains trade on Instagram. That is uh, morbid and spooky, if you ask me. When we get back... We'll go digging. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. And I'm Josh Rivera. In this show, we explore the weirder side of familiar technology. And this is undoubtedly a particularly weird one. How do you feel about bones, Joshua? I, I try not to have feelings about them because <laughs> <laughs> I like them where they are. As Benjamin Franklin said, right, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. But like you, most people do not like thinking about death. I mean, plenty of people like thinking about death, right? Like if you're gothine. Yeah. And I did wonder in researching this story how much of an overlap there is between goths and people who collect human remains and show them off on Instagram. So to get a sense of the history of this practice, I turned to the person who wrote the Wired article that first brought it to my attention. His name is Oscar Schwartz. I'm Oscar Schwartz and I'm a reporter and writer looking at mostly at science and technology. So I had no idea this kind of thing was happening until I stumbled across this article, at least not that it was taking place on Instagram. So I asked Oscar how on earth he came across this story. I was working on a story, it was actually about genetics um, and it was about how blood samples had been taken from Native American communities and also Indigenous Australian communities and had been used for medical experimentation without consent. And then I was looking into some efforts for repatriation of medical specimens back to certain communities. And through that, I kind of started reading more broadly about the looting of grave sites and burial sites um, in the United States and how there was this kind of obsession with owning skulls and bones of Native American people in America's colonial history. And from there, I think I literally, I mean, I often do this when I'm kind of doing basic research for a story. I'll just go on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and just type in, you know, hashtag skull just to see what there is. And then I came across all of these like really hectic photos of tribal skulls and it went from there. So this is besides the point, but First of all, hashtag skull. I'm going to remember that for a long time. But it's bananas to me how this really strange thing came about through researching colonial history and the sort of awful things that come with that. 
maybe not as bananas as you think, because it turns out that that colonial human remains trade goes way back and has been pretty popular since about the 1800s. In terms of more recent history, in terms of like collecting human skulls from people of other geographical regions or other ethnicities, it kind of is very much a colonial and Victorian kind of obsession that was associated with the cabinet of curiosities. So in like the age of exploration, it was like a great sign of wealth and prosperity and, and you know, being an intellectual to be able to afford these strange and interesting and exotic relics from other parts of the world and to display them in your house. And when you have guests over to kind of show them um, what you have and, and, you know, how worldly you are. And that's what it started as. But then it did transform into something more medically oriented a little bit later on, I guess, with like um, phrenology and race science, there was an interest in measuring skulls and trying to understand differences between the bone structure and the, you know, the medical makeup of people from different parts of the world. And so there was this kind of medical obsession with collecting bones in, in colonial America and really all over the colonial world. And you can see where this is going. It also dovetailed with kind of like anthropological interest in having different skulls in order to compare and contrast and make hierarchies out of people from different races. So, yeah, I guess it's like a, it's is associated with colonial era Europe. And what we see on Instagram is like this strange fusion of all of those interests. Yeah, it strikes me as a sort of morbid form of cultural appropriation. Like, I am into collecting skulls because they look cool to me, but what it means doesn't really matter to me. Right. And the aesthetic side of things is definitely where this kind of goth comparison comes in, right? Like if you're the kind of person who likes to wear black and decorate yourself and your environment with like gothic imagery, then why not go one step further and decorate with actual bones and you know where lots of people go when they want to buy something novel with which to decorate their home? Etsy. At, w w weren't we talking about Instagram? Yeah, don't worry. We'll get to it. But <laughs> I learned while researching this episode that people used to sell human skulls on Etsy until they banned it back in 2012. Human skulls? Like, where do they find them? <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, good question. We'll get into that. But when Etsy banned it, sellers of this kind of thing moved elsewhere. To Instagram? to eBay. I still don't, I don't quite believe people still use eBay. Like, I know that's very, <laughs> I know that's, that's ignorant. That's the point you're taking from this. <laughs> but I guess if I were to buy a skull, I would go to eBay. <laughs> well, not anymore, you wouldn't. Uh, I asked Oscar about this. One thing that I thought was really interesting in your article was that you said that previously eBay was the place to get these kind of human remains, but then they they banned it. Is that right? Can you tell us a bit about the history of that platform? All I know is that eBay was once the hub and then they banned it because there was something around imports and exports because different countries and even different state jurisdictions here in the States have different rules around buying, selling and storing human remains. And so I think it just became too complicated for eBay to figure out how to deal with those different jurisdictions. So they just shut it down. 
So those are the laws like about shipping, <laughs> shipping technicalities, not because like it's weird to do. <laughs> yeah, the legalities of this is kind of a complicated question. But Etsy and eBay did shut it down on their sites. Uh, and I asked Oscar whether he thinks that the same will happen on Instagram. Well, most people don't sell directly off Instagram. So they'll just present their collections and then people will DM them saying, is this for sale? And then they'll buy directly off their website. And so they avoid that issue. So Instagram is like a safe space for collectors to operate openly, even if they're selling items? Yeah, at least for now. And if you think about it, if collecting human remains is all about the aesthetic aspect, then Instagram is the perfect place to showcase your collection. Yeah, well, you know, in a way, I guess Instagram lends itself to the cabinet of curiosities style, like way of presenting things like decontextualize, you know, in order to impress your peers and um, very much associated with like signaling certain interests and gaining cultural capital. So I, th I do think that there is definitely symmetry there. So they became like Elvira, like just showing off their skulls. Yeah, sounds like it. And if you want to impress your peers, then you have to find them. But obviously Instagram can help there as well. One thing that I heard over and over from people was, uh, you know, it used to be really difficult to find other people who were interested in this type of stuff or to trade and swap or sell these type of items. And, you know, there was a few websites here and there and there was a few, you know, people kind of knew each other or knew the big dealers. But Instagram has connected them all and uh, really allowed them to... Uh, yeah, a lot of people transitioned, I think, with Instagram from being just collectors for their own kind of private interests to tradespeople and salespeople and actually making a living off it. Oh, that's interesting. So it's kind of that it's not that people wanted somewhere to display their collections and then they found Instagram. It's that maybe these people were on Instagram and then the nature of the platform you know, based on aesthetics and kind of showing off and things changed the way that they viewed their hobby, maybe? I think so. Yeah. These, I mean, I don't think anyone has just kind of stumbled upon skulls on Instagram and being like, oh, well, it's a great idea to buy a skull. Most of the people I spoke to had pre-existing collections, but they were more private. And then, yeah, Instagram as a visual platform lends itself to, you know, showing kind of weird shit and, and that gets attention. And so these people all of a sudden got like, you know, lots of followers and and that they just could double down on their collecting. So there are human remains collector influencers. Yes, we are talking about people who collect human remains and show them off and sometimes even arrange the sale of them on Instagram. And Oscar Schwartz, who wrote about this phenomenon for Wired, told me about one of these people who is particularly prominent. The main collector, Henry Scragg, the main character in the in the story, is, um, I mean, he's like the influencer of skull collecting. So we got in touch. My name is Henry Scragg, and I basically deal in curiosities. I tend to focus on macabre curiosities because they're of more personal interest than anything else. So to get a sense of what this collection and this shop and this guy is like, uh, you might want to have a look at his Instagram, which is curiosities from the fifth corner. The fifth corner? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
uh, buyer, seller, and collector of the macabre shop in Black Notley, Essex, UK. All right, so here, wow. The first photo in the grid is like skeletons arranged around like an old timey, what, like autopsy table? It's like a marble porcelain slab. Uh, he's got a candle on it. And there is a baby, like a live baby, uh, <laughs> just, just like having a jolly time surrounded by skeletons and a mannequin. And then there's like a, a toddler friend that this baby has. And these two girls are just smiling all jolly around these dead things. Yeah. So Henry is a parent and we are going to get to that in a sec. But basically, yeah, this is his collection. He has a shop where he sells this stuff. It's open only by appointment. It's in Essex, but you have to kind of contact him and get an appointment to look around. But once you're in there, you can just be like, hey, that skull, how much? And he'll be like, <laughs> several hundred pounds. And you'll be like, great. And you can take it home with you. I'll be like, great. And then not pay that much for the skull. <laughs> <laughs> Bye now. <laughs> Well, we are going to take a closer look and learn a bit more about Henry and his collection when we get back. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. And I'm Josh Rivera. And I'm learning about a world I did not know existed on Instagram. So you're probably wondering how someone ends up doing this kind of thing? Like, how do you end up collecting hundreds and hundreds of human skulls? So I asked Henry how he got into it. Well, for me, I've always hoarded, collected things. Mm. I just like things. You know, I was always one of them kind of kids who had various things in my pocket. And I can't have now a car or a bag or a room which isn't just got stuff in it. But as I started getting older, I started refining what I became interested in. Less plastic and more interesting old things like old bottles and animal skulls. And, you know, I don't know anyone from the past. I've not had an upbringing which has had any influence over human remains. You know, like I don't have parents who are doctors, for example, or anything like that. So at one point I realised that human skulls were available and you could own a human skull and it was legal to do so. He says that he thinks a lot of people have that interest but don't like to admit it to themselves, more people than we would think. You just don't know who is an open-minded person and who isn't. You really can't judge a book by its cover. I've had people in the past who visually are very alternative with, you know, tattoos and their clothing choice and everything else, yet they have been so close-minded because it is essentially a fashion to them. It is like they're a weekend goth, for example. And then there's other times where I have people who come into the shop and, you know, there's people who collect human skulls that you could not pick out out of a lineup. And there's just a lot of old people as well. Old people can be just really interested and show a real open mind and passion towards the fact that someone's doing something differently. I can see that, right? Like I've been acting as if this like freaks me the hell out, but like the buying and selling part is still strange to me, but like I get the interest, right? Like I live across the street from a very old, very large cemetery. It's genuinely kind of cool to just like wander around. I'm not particularly like morbid or describe myself as like a macabre enthusiast, right? Yeah, so he might be right that more people are interested in this than you would think. 
He did say that he doesn't have, for instance, like parents who were really into this stuff, that he like grew up around it. But as you saw in his Instagram, he does have a daughter, Ivy, who has obviously grown up around this stuff because he is really into it. And he said that she doesn't care at all. Like she's super into this stuff because she was born into a world where it was acceptable. So she doesn't see it as, oh, I'm interested in skulls and stuff. She sees it as in, this is life, you know, this is just a part of life. I think on Ivy's second birthday party, she had friends around for a party and I went back into the room and they're throwing a taxidermy cat around the living room. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> but that also tracks with me, like kids will roll with whatever you give them, right? To them, it's just an interesting thing. It's, it's only when you get older and other people plant the seed in your mind that it could be wrong that they start having that kind of opinion on it. That's so interesting. Is that the kind of thing where, I mean, did you have to like ask the other parents for permission to show this kind of thing to their children or did any of them have a problem with it? Um, no one mentioned that they had a problem with it. And if they did, I would be more than happy to sit down and have a conversation with them about it. All right. So I understand Henry's deal so far. What I'm trying to figure out is how did Instagram come into it? I used to search on eBay every night for anything. Uh, I just like buying stuff. But I found someone who was selling a resin skull with a real skull in the background, got talking to him. One thing led to another. I bought 11 human skulls. And then having Instagram, that is how business kicked off for me. Because I put the photos of them up and I had buyers and sellers contacting me. I sold some. I traded some for other things and photos of them went up and that's what got the ball rolling. Let me get a baker's dozen of skulls. <laughs> a baker's dozen is 13, Joshua. Yeah, but with skulls, it's, you know, a mortician's dozen then, you know, it's 11. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we then talked a bit about the community and he reckons that people who are into this kind of thing are quite secretive or can be, at least as far as their local community is concerned. And maybe they might not like to admit to their co-workers or their friends or family that they're into this kind of thing? I think in some respects, um, the community can be secretive when it comes to their local community and surroundings. Whereas online with certain groups, it's the opposite and people love to show off their collections. So he's got this Instagram page where he carefully arranges things under nice lighting and everything and makes this really aesthetically pleasing, if you're into that kind of thing, gallery. People find him on there because he's quite well known. Then they get in touch with him. He sells them a skull. He puts it in a box, uh, takes it to the post office. The post office now has learned not to ask any questions because they did not like my answers. But I give them a lot of money, so they're quite happy with that. <laughs> Jeez. And that's completely legal? Yeah. When it comes to human remains, everyone, if they hear you've got a skull, thinks, right, you're either a serial killer or you've dug it up. So there is that whole stigma around it and the legalities. But when it comes to the law, it's in the UK, it's governed by the Human Tissues Agency and they have got the act um, where basically... It states that you can only have human remains if, one, they're not on public display, unless you can prove they're over 100 years old or you have a license. You can buy and sell freely unless it is something which is going to be used for transplant. So, yeah, pretty much anything old. Man, 
All right. <laughs> That's a lot to take in. Does it freak you out? <laughs> I mean, a little bit, right? Like, as we're learning, there are above board ways to do this sort of thing. And Henry has standards. Whether or not they'd be my standards is something else entirely. But I do worry about, like, you know, amateurs who aren't as established or who don't necessarily have the standards that, you know, someone like Henry does have. Like, someone who's just getting started out. I mean, what are they doing? And how often are they doing it? Because no one's paying attention, you know? Yeah, I, I wanted to know a bit more about how exactly this kind of business works. So I asked Henry how easy it was for him to use Instagram himself to find sellers to buy human remains from. It's easy to find them. It's not easy to find one that you can trust. Unfortunately, there's a lot of sellers out there who they can scam. They do scam I mean, as a general rule of thumb, if someone's got a very large following and fan base, you can take that as a good sign that they've been doing it for a while and they are a trusted person. But you can never be completely sure. There's always people trying to scam me. Probably daily I get messages from people trying to sell me things and I recognise the photos instantly as someone else's. So, yeah, you've it's like everything in the world. You've got to be careful. I guess because of like the algorithms or, you know, just search terms, right? You can just type in hashtag skull and find <laughs> people who are interested in hashtag skull. And then you've got a community. And that's, that seems to be really important to these collectors. And there's obviously a genuine interest in this kind of thing from a lot of people. Uh, although apparently there are scams. Like he said he gets messages like daily from people who are trying to scam him. Uh, someone tried to sell him their kidney. Mr. Mead messaged me from Morocco and he was trying to sell me one of his kidneys because he needed some money. Huh? What? <laughs> I guess they thought like he collects dead things. Maybe he would like my living organ. Uh, they were trying to make money, apparently. It sounds quite sad, but apparently he's still in touch with them and they're doing okay. Well, well that's good. Wow, he sounds very nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He was nice. <laughs> I've got to say. He was Just a nice guy. Keep your kidney, man. I don't want to sell your skull down the line. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was asking him about how he knows what's authentic, he said that he can tell right away. I have sold thousands of human skulls in the past. And when when you see human skulls regularly, you start to notice what looks like a real skull and what looks like a fake skull. And there's plenty of skulls out there what are fake, what look so real. But there are always things that you can tell. With a fake skull, they're generally moulded or cast. And a lot of the structure of the nose the internal you can't fake it perfectly and it's such a complex looking thing uh, that's a good way of telling if something's not real again where do they come from so apparently most of the skulls that are kind of out there and he thinks there are loads of skulls out there are from like doctors and dentists and things like they used to just have them on display or like use them, I guess, for practicing or whatever, but they don't do that as much anymore. So they just kind of get rid of them and then he manages to acquire them. So apparently loads of skulls out there. He just has a few of them. I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? Like there are all sorts of practical applications for human remains that we don't tend to think about because we only think about, you know, like funerals and cremation and whatnot. Right. 
And he trades with other collectors as well. Like I said, this is like a community and they they trade amongst themselves. So what kind of person buys like a human skull? Generally, I don't have a typical customer. I mean, the majority of my sales are online, but obviously I've got a shop as well and I do have people come in. But when I get a message from someone asking to come into the shop, because I have it as appointment only, I never know who's going to turn up. Like I've had weekends where I've had big groups of alternative people come in and between them spent less than 50 quid. And then I've had a couple of, you know, your general laddish lads come in and they've treated themselves to a human skull and whatnot. You can never judge a book by cover. And it's a really beautiful thing. And like, how well does it get? Because when I think about remains, I think, bones. Is that mostly what it is? Yeah, I wondered the same thing. And that's where the audio that we played for you right at the beginning comes in. So here's Henry's answer. Um, I've got a full mummified woman at the moment. And she, Alice, is probably worth about £20,000. Jeez, 20000 And like, hmm, the exchange rate isn't as good as it used to be, but that's a lot of dollars. He did tell me that he even has something that is more expensive than the complete mummy, but um, he wouldn't tell me what it was, at least not on the record. Mm. Did he tell you off the record? Can you tell me when we're done? I'm sorry, Joshua. As you might remember, he said that he had conveniently forgotten, which made me even more intrigued. Like, what could be more expensive than an entire mummy? Uh... <laughs> I don't know. The the mummy's mom? A grandmummy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm afraid the jokes might soon be over because when we get back, we will hear more from Henry and explore the darker side of this human remains trade. Okay, so here's the other thing about this especially knowing how much this mummy is worth. Who decides that, right? What makes these things worth so much money? Depending on the condition, uh, my human skulls, they generally start around 500. um, And human skulls can go up to thousands and thousands of pounds. Just depending on condition or are there other qualities that make them more valuable? Well, with a human skull, it's not just your average human skull. So things what can change the value of a skull are condition, age, um, the culture and the provenance. But then you can also go into the uh, Peruvian elongated skulls, uh, the cradle-boarded skulls, the child and fetal skulls, the uh, tribal skulls when they're headhunted victims or they've been cannibalized. Then you've also got the medical side of things where you have medical conditions like Proteus syndrome, what the elephant man suffered, or you've got um, like conjoined twin skulls. And the amount of variation in what a skull can be is just, it's just crazy. Okay, so I've been pretty chill with all this. But like when you start going into like culture and provenance, that just skeeves me out, man. Like, you know, I mean, it just starts to feel like uh, like you're getting into like phrenology. 
Yeah, so this is where things start to turn a little problematic. And remember Oscar, the journalist we spoke to who wrote about this for Wired? He basically sums this up. I think that there is still a premium place on the rare or authentic or exotic skull. And you see, I mean, you'll see on Instagram that the ones that are most popular are the ones that are dressed up in kind of tribal display in in you know, the ones that are most revered are the ones that come from like Papua New Guinea. The other one that is um, really popular are like the elongated skulls that come from Peru, that there's like uh, ritualistic skull elongation methods. And so there is definitely this premium placed on the rare and exotic that is a direct throwback to what was interesting to you know, colonial period Europeans who um, were trying to collect human specimens from afar in a way that was like very destructive and dehumanizing. It sounds like you think then that even modern day collectors are still acting from that kind of colonial impulse and presumably they would disagree or did they just not care about that kind of characterization? The common defense was, well, it's not like anybody, these things already exist and they're already out in the market and we're not causing any further destruction or unnecessary death. And so, like, what does it really matter? That was the general attitude. I mean, that's like a very, like, neat way of, like, dodging the question without really engaging with it. It's still, I don't know, there there is a very long history of of sort of, like, and we talked about this already, but like the long history of plunder is sort of like inextricable from some of this stuff. I'm willing to rock with it as, you know, when you're talking about like, oh, there are like doctors and scientists who just have all this stuff they have to get rid of. But like the... the Fetishization? Yeah, fetishization of indigenous cultures and atypical, like atypical biology, right? Mm. Uh, j- just sort of like, it's... It's sensational. You know what I mean? It's It feels like exploitation and it, it feels easier to get away with because, you know, everything is dead and gone. But like that, that makes it feel like even more immoral. Right. And I asked him about this and he told me that he has a code. I never touch anything which is Native American. I've been offered a couple of times over the years, but it's just not something I want to get involved in. Um, you know, I mean, the Native Americans, they've gone through enough shit in the past. I don't think they need any more of that. But the majority of skulls and stuff, what I deal in, they're not cultural relics. You know, the majority of things I deal in are your basic human skulls or your decorated human skulls or your medical human skulls. They're not necessarily things that any country would care about. Kind of as a throwaway line, but when he was trying to explain himself, he was like, tribes have sold their own remains. And that was kind of a defense. Yeah, I'm sorry. But that's another one of those things that we used to say to justify like slavery is not being that bad because they used to say, oh, they sold their own people. And it's like that doesn't absolve anyone. Yeah, I mean, that's just very weak justification, isn't it? And he also mentioned that he doesn't deal in cultural relics and that he looks into the origins of the skulls that he trades, at least as far back as he can. I do try and get as much information on each piece as possible, but it's very hard to do so. A lot of the time, you know, skulls, they come from absolutely anywhere. I've had 
people find them in charity shops, in car boot sales, flea markets, um, auctions, even finding them in a bin or in a skip or something like that. Generally, if someone finds a skull and it's a medically prepared skull, you know, it's got hinges, it's been cut and cleaned in a medical manner, you can assume that it is one of the thousands and thousands of skulls what we use by doctors, dentists and anyone in a medical field training. If someone finds a skull which isn't medically prepared and it's just found somewhere, I would always hand that into the police because it could be a missing person, it could answer questions of people who are missing a loved one, could get you know a murderer put away because it could be vital evidence. In fact, there was um, recently I saw a story where someone had a human skull on their mantelpiece, what they'd found somewhere, and then it turned out to be a missing person. It's good that he has a practice of turning in skulls if he doesn't know their origin. But his earlier point still troubles me, right? The fact that we can't trace skulls very far back makes sense, but to me, it doesn't hold up as an excuse and doesn't make it any more ethical. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you judge your own ethics, right? Like, if it's to do with someone who lived like hundreds of years ago versus like people who only just died, like, I guess that makes a difference to some people. It's a complicated question anyway. And even if you've obtained it legally or ethically, you are still showing it off because you think that these skulls from other cultures look weird and cool, which doesn't seem particularly respectful. And Oscar agrees. I take his point that as a culture in general, we're not very good at looking or confronting death. And I don't think that we necessarily have to be as scared of human remains as we might be. But um, I think to ignore the political context of like being a white European person who is displaying tribal bones is just, you, you haven't really done your research. Yeah, that's pretty much like the neatest way of like summing up the problems here. And uh, it, it's, it's just like, it's not just what you're doing, it's who you are. It's the context you're situating it in. And also just uh, thinking about your audience, right? Like one of the things like in any field, like you are also in a way responsible for your audience and, and who you are courting and whose business you want. And, you know, it's very easy to just sort of like take the approach of being like, well, I just sold them a skull that I got as ethically as I could. It's not up to me, like what, what they're going to do with it or where their interest stems from. It's really interesting that you say that because I asked him if there was ever a situation where he would refuse to sell something to a customer, like if he ever was suspicious of their motivations or anything. He thought I was talking about if they might be undercover police. <laughs> so I was like, no, I just mean like, is there anyone you wouldn't sell to? Um, and he said... I mean, I have a bit of a rule on the fact that I generally try and respect the living and I won't sell to anyone if they're rude. And he thinks it's weird that we put so much emphasis on respecting human remains. Because for some crazy reason, we respect the dead more so than we do the living. I was curious what he thinks of his own remains. So I asked him if he had plans for them after his death. I'm hoping that my dear delightful little Ivy will do something a little bit more resourceful than bury me because, like everybody, I'm worth more when I'm dead than I am alive. So he 
said that he will make a particularly valuable skull because he's had gold fangs, solid gold fangs inserted into his skull. He even showed them to us on camera. Um, they do look pretty cool, but I guess they will make him worth more when he's dead. Yeah, I'm just investing in my corpse. See, even him saying something like, I'm worth more dead than I am alive is a little messed up to me. That's the whole problem with trading in the remains of like indigenous cultures. Their lives weren't valued when they were alive, but they w there's a price on them when they're dead. You can sell these remains for a crazy profit. And that's why there's a whole colonial history to all these things. Like there was value in plunder and that plunder extended not just to, you know, riches and lives, it extended to the remains. So, Joshua, now that you have found out about this human remains trade on Instagram and met one of the people involved, what do you think about the whole thing? This is my first time hearing about any of this. <laughs> and, and, you know, while it's nice that Henry seems swell and has standards, the whole thing seems pretty messed up to me still. <laughs> you know, like, I'm sure there are ethical ways to do it, and obviously people think about that, but it seems kind of inextricable from the more troublesome aspects of the practice. Yeah, it's tricky because like, yeah, Henry was really, really great to talk to. And I found myself agreeing with some of the places he was going, like about this, this weird kind of respect for the dead versus the living and that kind of thing. And I have been thinking a lot recently about death and kind of death positivity and thinking about death more and the fact that people don't like to talk about it. So I kind of agree with him there. But you're right, this kind of way of doing things in general, like where this whole trade comes from and its history is something that you just have to acknowledge. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing here, because there are some intersections between stuff that I would characterize as, you know, interesting or worthwhile, like death positivity, right? That's something that at first glance comes across as like macabre or morbid, and maybe it is, but it's also about talking about something plainly that we don't as a culture in a way that's interested in helping. And that's something else that the internet has helped with, right? Like this death positivity movement has really grown online thanks to places like, you know, YouTube and Instagram. Yeah. And it's funny too, because, you know, like, like we talk about a lot here, right? The technology, you know, these social media platforms are an accelerant. They don't make things better or worse. They sort of amplify what's already there and incentivize some behaviors over others. So like on Instagram, a lot of the incentive with buying and selling these remains are aesthetic. It's about cultivating a look that you like and other people will come to you for because you perform it well. If that is your concern, then how likely are you to consider the ethical implications of, you know, the remains you're buying or displaying or selling? What incentive do you have to even tell people what your ethics are, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. When I first found out about this, I couldn't quite believe it. I was like, that doesn't seem right that this kind of thing is happening on Instagram of all places. But now that we've talked about it and I've like met some of these people, it, it makes perfect sense, right? Like it's totally what happens when you have a platform like that. You know, you end up with these communities that are built around aesthetics, you know? Like I'm sure there's all sorts of weird niches on Instagram that we don't know about. Like for, for me, Instagram is just like baking and like vintage clothes, but I'm sure there's all sorts of weird stuff out there. 
Wild Wild Tech is a Studio 71 original podcast and a spoke media production. It's hosted by me, Jordan Erica Weber, and Joshua Rivera. You can find us at jordanweber.com and on Twitter at jmrivera02. Our producers are Cody Hofbockel and Janielle Kastner, with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and Caroline Hamilton. This episode was mixed by Will Short. Our executive producers are Stephen Perlstein and Andrew Seeley for Studio 71, and Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds for Spoke Media. Thank you for listening. That last Oscar quote started with like people being like, mm, I can't find an audience for my human remains. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, put uh, that in the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need, from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours, to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team, led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.